name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. My late friend and mentor, Bishop John Cahoon, used to describe the prayer book as the Bible in usable form. And there are several ways that this is so. The prayer book has two lectionaries that take us through the Bible thematically. There is a lectionary for morning and evening prayer that takes us through the whole Bible in a cycle each year and applies lessons that are appropriate to the various liturgical seasons. And the communion lectionary assigns certain lessons to each Sunday and feast, giving each Sunday and feast its own unique biblical emphasis. The prayer book also matches lessons with other lessons. An Old Testament lesson along with a New Testament lesson at morning and evening prayer each day, and an epistle and a gospel at communion along with, on Sunday, a starred Old Testament lesson to read along with those. This provides opportunity for meditation on the thematic connection between lessons, and it also provides opportunity to meditate on how each Sunday's lessons connect with the previous or subsequent lessons in a given season. Today's gospel, the parable of the wedding feast, calls to mind a parable earlier in Trinity season, the parable of the Great Supper that we read on the second Sunday after Trinity. In both lessons, there is a man who makes a feast and invites people. In both lessons, those invited either made excuses or simply refused to come. In both, the invited guests ended up being disinvited and the host, in both cases, invited others to replace them. However, there is a significant distinction in these two parables. The parable of the Great Supper stresses evangelism to the newly invited. It says, quote, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. The parable of the wedding feast emphasizes judgment. Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? It is thematically significant that the evangelical parable comes at the beginning of Trinity season and the judgment parable comes nearer the end as we begin to look toward Advent. Both parables deal with the same basic theme. The people of Israel were God's covenant people and were the invited guests. However, when you know, the prophets, culminating with Jesus and the apostles, called them to come to the feast, they refused to come, refused to repent and believe in the Messiah and thus fulfill the covenant. So God invited other guests, non-observant Jews, Samaritans and Gentiles, to take their place. The parable of the Great Supper ends with that initial shift in the constituency of God's people. Membership in God's covenant people is now open to everyone, regardless of race. All may repent and believe in Christ and become part of God's covenant people. The 
parable of the wedding feast moves towards the end. It tells us that God's new covenant people will be assessed. Just as God's old covenant people were judged in terms of their faithfulness to the covenant and their response to the call of God, so God's new covenant people, you and me, will also be assessed in terms of our faithfulness to the covenant and our response to God's call in our lives. In the parable, the king who made a marriage for his son came into the party and surveyed the guests. He found one who was not dressed appropriately and summarily cast him into, quote, outer darkness. It seems harsh, but in essence, he treated this unfaithful New Covenant representative in the same manner as he treated the unfaithful of the Old Covenant. We might envision the gospel scene in this manner. We are gathered around the altar for the Eucharist. And suddenly, instead of the sacramental body and blood of Christ, Jesus himself appears in person. This would put a whole new twist on what it means to be appropriately dressed for church. But of course, this is simply what we believe will happen. Someday, sacrament, sign, and symbol will give way to the realities they represent. If we understand this, then our whole practice of the faith will be an habitual and systematic preparation for that day. So just what is the wedding garment? Though it has been the subject of no small debate throughout the history of the church, the general framework of the answer seems obvious. Last week's epistle spoke of baptism in terms of putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Baptism is associated with a change of clothes, taking off the old garment of sin and putting on the new garment of holiness and righteousness. This is reflected in Revelation 7.14, which says of the redeemed that they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Thus, the man without a wedding garment was someone who had been baptized and was an occasional or perhaps even regular attendee at church. But he never embraced or fully lived out his baptismal identity. He was not in the habit of putting off the old man through confession and putting on the new man through the experience of forgiveness and the practice of good works motivated by the virtue of charity. This man illustrates that God is just as unhappy with the unfaithful baptized as he was with the unfaithful circumcised. 
The prayer book places these two great lessons about the invitation to the feast at the two ends of Trinity season. The parable of the Great Supper comes at the beginning, proclaiming that we are all freely invited to come. The parable of the wedding feast comes at the end, reminding us that if we come, we must come fully. This highlights two aspects of being called by Christ, what Martin Thornton calls succor and demand. On the one hand, come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. On the other hand, he who does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. This paradox is illustrated in the Eucharist. We are attracted by the grace and succor of the sacrament. But when we come, we realize that we are being placed on the altar along with Christ. As we come, we realize that it requires a sacrifice of ourselves, our souls, and our bodies as well. Our lessons today remind us we must take this all seriously. We are not merely going to church, and we're not merely here to make ourselves feel good. Rather, the kingdom of God is present among us right now through the gift of the Spirit. Here, the Spirit speaks to us through the ministry of word and sacrament. The Spirit calls us and requires us to respond to the invitation to repent and change. It is our vocation as baptized Christians to habitually listen to what God says to us day by day and week by week and allow God's grace to change us into new people who live in a new way. Thus our epistle exhorts us, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. In the new time of the kingdom of God, today is the Lord's day. And in the new time of the kingdom, the Lord's day points us forward to the day of of the Lord. Now our sinful bodies are made clean and our souls washed through a gradual process of growth through prayer over time. Then we will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet when we see Jesus in person. Therefore, let us be faithful in the life of prayer, faithful in the habits of putting off the old man and putting on the new man, so that we might find ourselves appropriately appropriately attired when the king arrives in person. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.